Hello, I'm Joan Kerr from International Programs, and we're happy to have you with us for tonight's World Canvas on Climate Science and the Environment. We hope during this discussion to get a better understanding of what science has to say about the impact of climate change on the environment and what a safe, clean, sustainable planet means to the people who inhabit it. We're coming to you from Merge in downtown Iowa City, and thank you all for joining us. I'd like to thank our colleagues also in the Office of Outreach and Engagement, the Office of Sustainability, the College of Engineering, and the Public Policy Center for helping us promote the event. Environmental challenges come in all shapes and sizes. Some seem far away and intangible, while others touch us in our homes, on our farmland, in the air we breathe, and in the water we drink. We hope to learn a lot tonight, and I'm grateful to have an exceptional panel of experts, beginning with my first two guests. They are just next to me, Greg Carmichael, professor in the UI College of Engineering and co-director of the Center for Global and Regional Environmental Research. Thanks for being here, Thanks, Greg. Mm -hmm. And at the far end, we have Gabriele Villarini, who's an associate professor in the University of Iowa College of Engineering, also the director of IIHR, Hydroscience and Engineering. So thank you, Gabriele. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Great. Could I go to you first? I'm going to start with a very big quest, uh, question. Just ask you to give us a big picture overview of where we are in terms of air quality um, globally and then regionally, however you'd like to get us into that. Well, um, air quality is, remains a tremendous uh, problem around the world. Uh, uh, current estimates are about 7 million avoidable deaths occur each year due to air pollution. Uh, and many of those are in the, you know, the developing world. But uh, as we learn more and more, even in Iowa City, uh, we have uh, health impacts from, from air quality and any changes, uh, negative changes in air pollution levels uh, has a health impact. Mm -hmm. But certainly uh, you know, around the world, I'm doing a lot of work these days in, in China and India cities and uh, tremendous problems uh, and they, they're facing it in a very aggressive manner. And I think that bodes, uh, it's good news, it's a hard problem, but uh, they are uh, taking actions to be more sustainable, and I think uh, trying to find solutions that are both going to help the air quality, but also help uh, reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a little bit of an idea of some of the, the sort of um, policy approaches that both India and China are taking? Well, I think one, one point I'd like to make about uh, dealing with air quality in, in cities like Delhi and Beijing, and it's also the same for reducing greenhouse gas emissions, uh, there's no silver bullet. I mean, they, India now has a national clean air program that they're just uh, launching, and I was there last week to, to help uh, think about implementation. There's 30 strategies that uh, are all going to be uh, put into play and need to be put into play to, uh, to make uh, changes, and the changes are going to take decades to, to see, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the final results from. Mm -hmm. Well, in, uh, a moment ago, you mentioned pollution, tracking pollution, and um, if you could take us back 25, 30 years and tell us where we were then in understanding who the polluters were, where the pollution was going, what it was doing generally to the sort of global environment, what kind of progress have we made? So we, we have a better understanding of the sources of pollution in both the source of pollutions and the greenhouse gas implications. We have a much better understanding, I think, of the strategies. We have better techniques to detect pollution levels, so we don't have to rely on the measurements from, you know, uh, a local measurement that may mm -hmm. or may not be mm -hmm. accurately on, on mm -hmm. purpose or, mm -hmm. <laughs> or disguised uh, uh, on purpose. Uh, now we can detect from space. And so we have a lot more ways of, uh, 
of controlling. <laughs> I do think, though, that uh, one lesson learned is we go back to Los Angeles, you know, in the 1960s. Uh, yeah. We had higher pollution levels than any of the cities that exist today. Really? Um, and, you know, it, it's taken them 60 years, mm -hmm. uh, and they still have, mm -hmm. you know, still in violation of our air quality standards. So it takes time, but I think what we are seeing is that we can learn and transfer ideas more quickly, mm -hmm. and so it won't take Delhi 50 years. It mm -hmm. may take them 20 years. So Yeah. So what can you tell us about the rising temperatures um, on, on the globe, if we call it global warming, or, you know, if you, some of the research I was doing indicates that it seems to be just a couple of degrees, and that doesn't sound like anything to an average yeah, uh, person. Uh, but and so already, you know, we've increased the global temperatures by one degree Celsius, uh, by most projections right now, with the path we're on, we're, we're headed above two degrees. Mm -hmm. The Paris Accord that uh, was put into, you know, discussed is to try to limit, limit us to two degrees. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, the actions being taken won't get us there yet, but it's a step in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And what we're learning more and more is that th that's the global temperature. The real science in climate change is what's happening at the regional scale now. Mm -hmm. And we're getting much better about uh, understanding, downscaling what will happen to the Midwest versus mm -hmm. the global change. Uh, mm -hmm. And in many of those regions, uh, we're finding that uh, uh, right now we're on paths that might be as high as four or five degrees really? changes in those regions. And, and you know, when you get above about two degrees, you get very uh, uh, large changes in climate and, mm -hmm. and, and faster changes in climate that mm -hmm. we can deal with. And I think we'll be facing extremely difficult uh, challenges for sustainability if we go much beyond uh, mm -hmm. two degrees. Well, in your work with the uh, um, Center for Global and Regional Environmental Research, is a lot of your work focused on the Midwest and on, on Iowa? Um, we do have a lot of our work is, is uh, regional uh, mm -hmm. with an Iowa focus because we, we live here mm -hmm. <laughs> and we like to see impacts. Uh, but I think it's also important to, to point out that a lot of the research is international. Mm -hmm. And it's important for us to do that international research. And I would say that uh, we might be in a mode right now where we discount the international activities and want to take a very local view of things. Uh, mm -hmm. And in the case of climate and most environmental problems, uh, that in and of itself is not enough. We really need a local, regional, mm -hmm. and global perspective. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for getting us started. Um, I'm going to go down to you now, Gabriele, and uh, ask you to tell us a little bit about your work, and then we'll focus more specifically on something called atmospheric rivers that I know you can tell us about. So um, please tell us about your research. Yeah, my, my research focuses on extreme events uh, and trying to look at extreme events in, as a way of understanding what causes them uh, so that if I, we understand what the drivers are and if we can predict what the drivers are, then we are better positioned to be able to tell you what in the future the situation might look like. In terms of extremes, we, in my group, we focus on uh, hydrometeorological extremes, so floods, uh, hurricanes, uh, uh, heavy precipitation, uh, and atmospheric rivers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so there have been some interesting articles about your work with atmospheric rivers. Yeah. Uh, um, they look beautiful when, when you can kind of They're look at them. They're pretty amazing. Yeah, pretty yes. amazing. But if tell us what the... they actually are, because we can't see them with the naked eye, right? 
Well, you can't uh, just from the ground. You need mm -hmm. satellite, as mm -hmm. uh, Greg mentioned, in terms of uh, air pollution. Uh, they are beautiful features of the atmosphere. And so imagine like a hose that uh, this concentrated flux of water that is basically focused on a specific, uh, specific location. So you have a lot of moisture, a lot of water that is uh, uh, dropped over a very regional, a very regional um, uh, part of the country. Some of the work that we've done revolves around the western, western US, the west coast of the United States. Some of you might have heard them uh, described in terms of the Pineapple Express, where basically features this element that originates in the tropics close to the Hawaii, and there is this moisture that is transport, water that is transport from the tropics up to the mid-latitudes, California, Oregon, Washington. Um, they are very con they are called atmospheric rivers because if you look at them, they look like rivers in the sky, literally. The amount of moisture that they transport is huge. Um, several, uh, several hundred times the Mississippi River at St. Louis, just to give you an order of magnitude of uh, how big they are. And they are good and they're bad. You know, like with any of these kind of events, there are positive features associated with them and negative features. The positive features is that they are a key component of the water, uh, water budget, uh, water cycle, water resources for the Western US. So when we hear about the snowpack and how the snowpack in uh, much of the Sierra and much of the West Coast has been reducing, is tied to the lack of these, uh, these events. They are tied to um, heavy rainfall events, mudslides, uh, floods. Uh, and so that's, in a sense, the negative side, the negative implications of these events. Uh, the positive implications are the water resources, the negative are or the mudslides, floods, uh, and all the effects that, uh, all the negative uh, effects. They are also called drought busters. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the West Coast uh, drought uh, that we're just uh, getting out of, uh, we have been able to get out of that kind of uh, situation because uh, uh, there has been a much larger frequency of these events. And so that alleviated the drought conditions. And John, just to bring it home a little bit, it's not just a West Coast problem, but it's also a much more uh, central US uh, issue as well. Most of the attention in the literature has been focused on the West Coast. They are big and they have received a lot of attention. In central US, it's an area where we have been uh, focusing on quite a bit. And so if we go back to the 2008 flood event that affected all of us, uh, all of us here, uh, that kind of flood event was uh, driven by the occurrence of multiple uh, atmospheric rivers that uh, transported moisture from the Gulf of Mexico into the, into the central US. So it's... Yeah. I, and so I take it these, these rivers don't have one path. What you, what you study is the fact that they, they move around. They land... The, yeah. The storms land in different places, and mm -hmm. and by understanding what's happening up there, we might be able to do a better job of planning for emergencies and disasters. Absolutely. So there are a couple of elements. That, uh, one is that they are not static features, and as any atmospheric event, they tend to move uh, 
move across the area of interest. The problem becomes if they tend to get stuck in a certain area for an extended period of time, that's where you get the deluge. That's where you get the heavy rainfall, the flooding comes with them. Uh, one of the elements that we have looked at is uh, why do we treat these events as all coming, as all being the same? So there are the events that are affecting Southern California, for instance. Why do we try and look at them from the same point of view, from the same perspective as events that might affect Oregon and Washington? And so we took a little bit of a, a broader perspective and we said, well, let's try and see if they are indeed different. And if they are, why do we expect that the same drivers are responsible for their occurrences? And it turns out that they are not. They are not all the same and they are not coming uh, driven by the same uh, atmospheric phenomenon or climate, uh, climate condition. And so being able to understand what drove the, uh, what has been driving the occurrence of these events uh, from a climatic perspective actually has uh, led us to a path where we can uh, be better positioned to predict the occurrence, their occurrence with all the implications from uh, a water resources management perspective and uh, disaster preparation. Mm -hmm. But in terms of, um, of uh, removing the threat, that's beyond our control unless we can get a handle on warming oceans and, and greenhouse gas emissions and all these kinds of things? I mean, is, is there any, we can do a better job of planning for the disaster. Yeah. Is, there a better, is there a way to um, kind of reduce the likelihood of severe storms? So from, so from this perspective, we, as I mentioned, they are not all negative aspects associated with these events. Mm -hmm. So if we were to, in an hypothetical future, we were able to get rid of these events, basically we would be in a perennial drought conditions in oh, the West Coast. Sure, sure. So it's not necessarily the uh, getting rid of the events. Uh, it's more how do we manage when they become so extreme that would overload uh, yeah. uh, our uh, water infrastructure. Yeah. So yeah. it's, uh, if you know when they are coming or you have a sense, mm -hmm. uh, then you can be better prepared for them. The idea that we can to a certain extent, the gene engineering our way out of all uh, extreme events. Yeah. It's yeah, can't do that. So, so um, what do you think the future holds for the next few years here in, the, in Iowa in terms of, um, you know, drought conditions or rainy conditions? Do we see patterns that are likely to, um, well, can we get an idea of, of what we're likely to face, or are we just sort of um, um, reliant on the winds to give us whatever they give us? Yeah. yeah. I think we are getting better. I think mm -hmm. uh, the climate science is advancing uh, tremendously. Uh, like I mentioned before, regional components, uh, the models are getting better at mm -hmm. uh, regional components. We're learning more about our capability to actually attribute extreme events to uh, climate uh, mm -hmm. events or not. and so. Uh, our understanding of that is, in, is in increasing. Mm -hmm. And what we know is that if we can uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions uh, over time, uh, that uh, when we warm the climate, we actually increase the uh, probability of extreme events. And mm -hmm. so uh, we can uh, uh, expect uh, fewer uh, mm -hmm. extreme events mm -hmm. in the future and things like heat waves and others that have uh, you know, tremendously negative mm -hmm. uh, components and not positive sure, sides. Sure. Uh, uh, we're also moving in a way, we're moving much more towards climate services. Mm -hmm. And so now the meteorological services around the world are developing climate services so that we can actually give 
seasonal and decadal predictions of, uh, of expectations about uh, regional impacts, uh, growing season, extreme event, uh, and so you can actually begin to uh, adapt and plan for these in a much mm -hmm. better, better way. And that's largely being produced by just, uh, I think, a tremendous interest in, in moving forward from a science perspective. So mm -hmm. It's both uh, observations, it's understanding, it's computer resources, all of those mm -hmm. things are, are expanding tremendously and it's leading to a much better understanding mm -hmm. of, of the climate system. So. Well, so then I have a question about um, uh, the political world we live in, because the science may tell us one thing, an informed discussion may tell us one thing, but then someone will say, well, wait a minute, the weather's always been strange. You have a few pleasant years, a few disastrous years. That's weather. That's not climate. What do, what do we say to people who don't understand that this is... Well, I think the policy horizon is, uh, is one that... Uh, is quite serious. I mean, mm -hmm. we can take lots of things locally, we can act individually, lots of good things are happening, but in my mind, the, uh, the climate challenge and uh, the continued uh, growth in the greenhouse gases is such that uh, we really need a sense of urgency and, and without national uh, uh, programs, uh, uh, there's a role for that and it's needed. And, uh, mm -hmm. It's not just us, but uh, yeah. uh, India, I, I come back, you know, they have tremendous air pollution problems, but uh, their natural energy strategy is we're going to burn all the coal we have and their greenhouse gas emissions are, mm -hmm. are uh, increasing tremendously. Mm -hmm. and, you, know, you need national policies, you need international cooperation, and mm -hmm. we still need all the local and regional, but the lack of national attention and international cooperation mm -hmm. in this area is... Uh, is a serious issue in my mind. So. Yeah, yeah. And, and what do you think, Gabriele? Do you feel that there, is, um, uh, that there are uh, inroads being made in public understanding of, of really just how very serious this is? <laughs> <laughs> Enough said, I guess. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, what uh, Greg just said is, uh, is exactly right. And... Uh, if you look at the evidence from uh, their climate models, agreed. I mean, ideally, we would want to have observations of the future. Reality is we can't. Mm -hmm. And so the climate models uh, are the best we can do. And there has been quite a bit of progress. And some of the uh, directions, or at least the path that we have been undertaking, point to this exacerbation of extreme conditions, much more so if we keep on moving along the same trajectory that we currently are. And so just to frame some of the more recent results that we have been getting, if you look at uh, one and a half, two degree climate projections, the Paris Agreement that uh, Greg just mm -hmm. mentioned, uh, you look at projected changes in extreme precipitation, um, anywhere in the world, uh, the problem is uh, that by being able to control greenhouse gas emissions and you're looking at extreme uh, precip, this idea that the drier gets drier, wet gets wetter actually can be mitigated where the dry gets wetter and the wet gets uh, drier so that you are more of a zero net uh, game mm -hmm. globally. So. Uh, there have been indications, and it's consistent with what we would expect from physics and physical processes and the way that uh, the response would look like. Um, from a climate acceptance of the public, well, that's uh, mm -hmm. a little bit more of a, it's a very polarized issue. Yeah. And so, yeah. 
Well, I, I don't know if everyone had a chance to see this today, but today when uh, the French president, President Macron, spoke before Congress, he said, I predict that the United States will once again join the Paris Accord, and um, we'll see. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I want to thank you both very much for taking the time to be with us this afternoon, Greg Carmichael and Gabriele Villarini. Thank you. Thank you. And um, for all of you, <laughs> please. <laughs> Um, we'll take a break for a moment here and then uh, have our second set of guests join us. I'm Joan Kerr. This is World Canvas for International Programs, and we'll be back in a minute. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from Merge in downtown Iowa City. Our topic tonight is climate science and the environment. What's next? We turn our attention to water quality, nutrient management, and something called the Iowa Watershed Approach in this segment with our two guests, Craig Just, just next to me here, an assistant professor in the University of Iowa College of Engineering, and Larry Weber, a professor in the University of Iowa College of Engineering. Thanks, you guys, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. So I think it goes without saying, I hope it goes without saying, that Iowans value clean water, our rich soil, healthy rivers, flood control, and so on and so on. But with a variety of agricultural, rural, and urban interests and cost, always, always an issue, it takes long-term planning, a certain amount of compromise, and perhaps most importantly, a real understanding of how science can inform decision-making to the benefit of our communities and citizens. Um, Craig, if I could start with you, I'd like to ask you to tell us about about your work related to the health and sustainability of Iowa's waterways and uh, where you feel we are in that long process. Um, I feel it's going to be a long process, <laughs> um, for sure. And uh, your opening part that, you know, um, you know, not all Iowans appreciate um, the value of the water and uh, the functions of our rivers and various ecosystem services uh, therein. Um, I'm reminded of uh, the 2008 flood in Cedar Rapids was brought up in the uh, earlier segment. And uh, as a potential solution to that, I think someone suggested that we just essentially pave the river uh, so the water can move through more quickly and, uh, and move out. And, and, it, and not all, you know, very few Iowans think that way, um, thankfully. But um, what it highlighted for me was the, the, the invisible ecosystem service that um, is inherent, embedded in many of these waterways, rivers, streams, uh, lakes, and, and other um, entities like that. And, and when they're kind of invisible like that, it's hard to bring that service to life and how it does impact you as an Iowan or just a, you know, a citizen of the planet. And so, um, you know, with that in mind, some of my research has been to try to make some of those ecosystem services tangible and real. Um, and I also, um, thinking that it might take a long time uh, through policy and education uh, to restore some of our rivers and streams, I wanted to try to find a way um, to maybe... Uh, improve their own ability to um, self-protect. Mm -hmm. And that led me to some of my work on mussels and other things. Yeah, so this has been a little bit in the news uh, in recent months. Um, freshwater mussels helping to clean Iowa's rivers? Sure. Um, and by the way, I highly recommend this. I, I got to do a gig at uh, Hancher, um, and, it's, uh, and they have beer at theirs, uh, which is really, <laughs> um, by the way, just a note uh, to international <laughs> programs in general. Um, it was called uh, Science on Tap, um, and, but the, the beers are seven bucks a piece, so that was an issue. But, um, but um, I was able to talk about, and let's be clear, native freshwater mussels, uh, not the zebra mussels that you hear about so often. Uh, they have a totally different life cycle, and, and their impact on the ecosystem is very different than the native freshwater mussels. Um, but 
um, you know, seeing kind of the trajectory of our dialogues with respect to nutrient uh, impacts on our surface waters here in Iowa, and wanted to do something as, as a researcher that could maybe make a positive impact on that. And having been introduced to freshwater mussels and what they do um, as part of their ecosystem service um, and they're just their natural life cycle, thought about some ways we could better quantify their value to us and also try to find a way to bring them to life for folks. Um, they're, they're bottom feeders, they're burrowers, they live in the bottom of these uh, of our rivers. Um, and like a, a healthy uh, pocketbook muscle, for example, um, very large muscle would be the size of my hand extended. Um, uh, they're very, um, some of these organisms are very old, could be 50 years old. And just one of those muscles of that size can filter 10 gallons of water per day. And so they're filter feeders and uh, they remove par uh, particles from the water. Well, those particles would be algae and phytoplankton that are a result of over-fertilization of our surface water. So I thought, well, if I could somehow find a way to advocate um, for habitat restoration for mussels, maybe I could make a little bit of a dent uh, in this overall problem. I just assume we keep the nitrogen on the land, um, but until we do that a little bit better, um, I thought this might be one way to, to make an impact. And so um, I like to tell people in that context that I study how freshwater mussels eat, pee, poop and puke with respect to nitrogen. So I know all of those things, right? I know how much they eat, I know when they eat, I know when they sleep, and I know when they excrete. Um, I know all those things, and then we can quantify those things and try to put that on the map then uh, as we advocate for habitat restoration uh, in the midst of other things we might spend those dollars on. Mm -hmm. Do these river, do these um, mussels you've been talking about, do they live in all Iowa's rivers or just the yep, river? they're all around. Um, and there was a, a recent statewide survey which ironically um, led to uh, five stream stretches that, that went off of the Iowa impaired list because they found uh, several mussels uh, during those surveys that they didn't know to be there. And so for, you know, folks that think that we just keep impairing and impairing our waters, sometimes they, they get off the impaired list too. Um, the mussels, I, and by the way, mussels are amazing. Uh, you really should check it out. They're all shapes and sizes, big and small. As an engineer, I went for the big ones that pump a lot of water, that filter a lot of water, because I, I wanted to, to have, an, you know, again, a, a, an impact on the, the uh, water column itself and the particles in there. Uh, and then there are billions of them uh, in the Mississippi River, for example, billions of them, just in the upper Mississippi River. Um, but there used to be tens of billions of them. One of the things that we did uh, to them uh, years ago, um, it's ironic, uh, a nice uh, uh, feature of plastic um, is that the plastic buttons replaced uh, pearl buttons that used to be made out of mussel shells. And there were operations 100 years ago near Muscatine and other places. In fact, you can go to the Pearl Button uh, Museum uh, in Muscatine if you want to check these things out for yourself. Um, but huge barges and grappling hooks just scraping up tons of mussels and bringing them in just to kill them so you could punch holes out of them and make buttons. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, we depleted that resource and then plastic came along and, you know, yay for plastic um, <laughs> um, in, that, in, in that context. Um, but nonetheless, uh, and so we've depleted that resource. It's never really recovered. And then modern threats to them is sedimentation as, again, the nitrogen runs off the land, but, you know, four to five tons of soil runs off per acre. Um, off the land as well, and it essentially buries these mussels in place. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the major threats to their, to their um, livelihood today. Um, not to mention the fact that they need a fish host to reproduce. 
Um, and so pregnant mussels um, have a kind of fleshy tissue that looks like a small minnow or a small fish. They attract a host fish like a perch or smallmouth bass. And when that fish gets close enough, they inject their, they spit their eggs out and they get caught in the gills uh, of the fish. And that's how they can, they can move. They don't swim or, you know, they don't walk very fast. They do, they do have a muscular <laughs> foot. Um, but the only way they can spread out is through this fish host, um, sort of a, an application, as, as that resource has also been uh, depleted in many of our rivers and streams. Their ability to, um, to procreate um, has been threatened as well. So, you know, it's, it's, it, they're like the canary in the coal mines for our rivers, as far as I'm concerned. And um, how they go, the overall health of our rivers and streams go. Mm -hmm. And so there, we're studying just for that uh, uh, reason alone. Yeah, wow, terrific. Um, well, well, Larry, let's move over to you. We've been talking about runoff and, and uh, agricultural um, implications to what happens with our waterways and our groundwater resources and all that. Um, tell us about something called the Iowa Watershed Approach. Yeah, and so that's a, it's a long story. Uh, I'll try to uh, stay on task here a bit. Uh, the Iowa Watershed Approach Project is one that was funded uh, through uh, a joint funded program with Housing and Urban Development and the Rockefeller Foundation, who came together a few years ago and put $500 million each, or a billion dollars, into a fund to create the National Disaster Resilience Competition. Uh, it was in response largely to Superstorm Sandy and the eastern uh, seaboard states looking for another $180 million of recovery funds. When they went to Congress and asked for those funds, uh, many of the representatives from other parts of the U.S. said, well, what about us? We had a presidential disaster in our area as well. So they put this program together, created a billion-dollar fund. Uh, 63 jurisdictions around the U.S. Uh, applied for those funds in a pre-proposal activity. The state of Iowa was one of them. Uh, 40 were invited for full proposal development, uh, one of those being the state. Uh, we were asked to lead the proposal development on behalf of the state of Iowa. So we put this proposal together, and our focus there is to uh, spend about um, $40 million in urban infrastructure, about $40 million in rural watershed protection and, and programs. In that rural watershed uh, approach that we call the Iowa Watershed Approach, we start uh, with establishing a local governance structure. Uh, that's a watershed management authority, been established in Iowa code for a few years. We have over 20 in the state now. Uh, we put sensors out in the watershed to monitor stream runoff, uh, soil moisture, soil temperature, stream flow, water quality. Uh, then we work with that local governance structure to create a watershed plan. So now they have a plan that hopefully can guide them for the next 20 years. And then we spend $40 million or so on these conservation practices. And so here's where things get really exciting because, you know, putting wetlands, farm ponds, reconnected floodplains out on the landscape to hold that water back where it falls during heavy rainfall reduces stream flow downstream. And working with local landowners in this Iowa Watershed Approach project, we can provide 75% cost share to getting those practices built. Um, then we use, you know, the monitoring and some very high-end uh, modeling that we do to quantify the benefit of those practices. Uh, we do um, the work very locally. Uh, we target uh, within those large watersheds, uh, these smaller watersheds, where in each one we want to spend about a one and a half to two million dollars to really concentrate practices. We have sensors. We concentrate those practices. We can then measure a quantifiable benefit. 
Um, we think that with the local governance structure, the watershed plan that gives them a vision for the next 20 years or so, the experience in building these practices and working with local landowners, uh, the quantification of the benefit, that uh, we can really develop a sort of long-term vision for flood damage reduction and water quality improvement across the state. Um, we're working in the eight watersheds from the far northeast in the upper Iowa watershed around Decorah, the upper Wapsipinikin, the middle Cedar as it comes into Cedar Rapids, Clear Creek just outside of Coralville, the English River around Kelowna, the North Raccoon as it flows to Des Moines, and in far southwest Iowa, the east and west Nishnabotna rivers. So we've covered the state, we've canvassed the state, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, in this program. Uh, we're working in all those geomorphic landforms. We're working uh, with agricultural practices that vary uh, quite a lot uh, across that region. And so I think we really have developed a long-term uh, vision for Iowa. No, that sounds wonderful. Are there any uh, tough touch points? Are there any real areas of disagreement either between an, an individual, um, uh, maybe a, a farmer who wants to do something in a certain way and the, the county plan or the regional plan might suggest a different way of looking at it? Is, is this often rather, you know, difficult? Well, you know, I, I wouldn't say that it's been that difficult in the sense that um, even though we have, you know, $40 million of conservation that we're going to build, you know, there's a, it's a significant issue, a real challenge out there. Mm -hmm. So we need, you know, much more funding uh, to really be able to address this statewide. So when we go into a watershed and even these smaller uh, watersheds where we're going to spend $2 million, you know, it is an opportunity-rich environment. There are so many opportunities for us to build these practices. We run out of funding before we run out of interest. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we really do have usually a long line, if you will, of farmers that want to come forward, learn more about the project, find out how they can get, you know, cost share uh, to build a practice on their land. And then when we go back a few years later, uh, we see these wetlands, we see, you know, the, the natural resources benefits, mm -hmm. we see the enjoyment that the landowners have with those practices. And, you know, it, it just is something that, you know, builds off of positive experience. So we really think there's a lot of value. You know, certainly um, issues of, you know, farmers, you know, typically in a agricultural production, you know, they want to get water off their land as quickly as they can. But we're talking about holding it back in areas that they've seen repeated flooding. No. And the more we go forward in time and the more these areas um, had, had seen repeated flood damage, the more interest there is uh, from those producers to say, you know what, I think I should take that land out of production. Uh, it's not really serving my you know, agricultural um, enterprise very well. Um, maybe I can do that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and how is it that you've determined which areas you wanted to concentrate on first, these first 20? How was it that, that those areas were um, defined? Well, the, you know, the areas were defined, and there's a long kind of eligibility process that HUD takes us through. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the more interesting part for our conversation tonight is how do we determine where the practices go onto the landscape? And it's amazing the amount of data and resources that we have available today. Uh, we're working in partnership with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources and Iowa State University, and they're doing a project right now across the entire state where they use aerial photogrammetry and um, LIDAR-based elevation maps of the entire state, and they're identifying every pond, every wetland, every grassed waterway, every location of all the conservation practices that exist in our landscape today. In our project, we can run a model that was created by uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture uh, called the Agricultural Conservation Planning Framework Tool. And so we run this model, and it shows within that watershed every place where a farm pond, a wetland, is viable, every place where a grass waterway could be installed, uh, an agricultural um, 
um, uh, drainage buffer, uh, and all of the kind of practices that reduce flow and also improve water quality. What we can then do is we take the map that shows where all the practices are and the map that shows where all the practices are possible, and then we can target landowners that don't currently have adoption of those practices. What's been kind of a, a validation for us is that when you look at the grassed waterways that exist and you compare that with the grassed waterways that are possible, the saturation is close to 80%. So farmers have done a really good job over the last um, 20 to 30 years. You know, you go back into the 70s and you think about, you know, the amount of soil loss we had then, much, much, much more so than it is today. Grass waterways have done a great job. Farmers saw that. The soil and water conservation districts, uh, which was really the soil commission, began uh, by working with landowners to hold that soil back on their land. They've done that done a great job with it. It was all voluntary. Uh, it's how voluntary actions can really happen. When we look at wetlands and farm ponds and saturated buffers and bioreactors, uh, it's much different. Saturation levels out there are at about 1%, perhaps 2%. So there's an opportunity. Uh, how do we go out and get those wetlands built? How do we get those bioreactors built? How do we get the saturation or the, the, the number of those practices to increase and increase much more rapidly? Mm-hmm. And, and can you tell us anything about the groundwater situation in, or the, the aquifer situation in, um, in Iowa? Um, a, a program we did some time ago, the indication was that we, we are, that water doesn't come back very fast, right? So if we um, pollute the, the underlying waters or if they don't get replenished, Iowa suffers. Certainly, and, and there are others that can speak to this much better than I can, but I would say that we have a, a real shortage of information about groundwater in Iowa. Uh, it's an unseen resource, yeah. uh, sometimes unthought of, um, but as we tap into that water that oftentimes is hundreds of thousands or millions of years old, mm-hmm. uh, and we take it as a resource and we want to use it for various um, municipal uses, and drinking water, of course, is a, a real high-valued use. Um, there's, there's certainly a, a need to understand that resource and understand how quickly we're depleting it. If we start using that for irrigation uh, of agricultural lands, then you know we start raising maybe some some greater questions, or we start using it for some industrial uses. You know, at some point, some of those resources will run out. And if, if, if we're not careful, if we don't do the appropriate studies, if we don't do the appropriate monitoring of them, you know, we could be left in a situation where we're just simply unprepared for the eventual decline of that resource. Yeah. Well, uh, as we were preparing for this program, Craig made a very important point, which was we should be talking about all these things related to the environment, the earth, waters, and all the rest of it. But let's also talk about the impact on individual people, vulnerable populations, um, um, all of us who want to enjoy the earth as much as we can. Um, I want to turn it to you and tell me what you think about when you're working on these issues, Craig. Well, tied to the uh, Iowa watershed approach in that project, I lead our flood resilience team. Um, And as Larry mentioned, it was part of the National Disaster Resilience Competition funded partly by HUD. And so as part of that, HUD left uh, left us, uh, by and large, to define what resilience means and how we were going to operationalize the creation of more resilience in these watersheds is one of the objectives. 
And also, since it's HUD funded, there's special considerations, special requirements for benefit to low to moderate income populations. And so um, those populations are, are not very well defined um, in many ways, and so we've taken that to another level using census data and uh, social vulnerability indicators, particularly for people. This is uh, research from Eric Tate uh, here on campus. Um, particularly uh, social vulnerability ind indicators uh, that represent flood risk or flood vulnerability uh, could be percent poverty, percent black, percent Hispanic, uh, percent female head of household, those sorts of uh, uh, indicators. Uh, and then mapping those uh, at the census track level, those indicators, creating a social vulnerability index that then transects flood risk. <laughs> so where you have highly vulnerable populations at a very high flood risk, that's a special place you need to be uh, focusing resources. And most recently, I presented this to an organization called LAPAID, uh, which is Lynn Area Partners Active in Disasters. Um, and that was formed after the 2008 flood. And the, the brand new, uh, his name's Steve, I forget his last name, uh, but the brand new emergency manager uh, for Lynn County uh, just fell in love with these maps because not only does, does you know, he um, know where the vulnerable folks are, but he knows the top three indicators on why they're vulnerable. Some people just don't have cars and mm -hmm. you can't flee, you can't leave. Yeah. And, and with respect to emergency management, when you wanna plan for evacuations or plan for ways to respond to floods, you need to know those sorts of issues. Um, and so to, to provide a little bit of geographic granularity to their planning efforts and their mitigation plans and their um, disaster plans, um, was and so he immediately booked us. So we're going back. Uh, we're going to train him how to do that. And and I told that group though, um, because if you've seen like IFAS, the Iowa Flood Information System, we map anything. We have amazing folks that do that sort of work. For us, it's is is what we're mapping valuable. And again, my goal in this project was to literally put people on the map. I wanted, um, and the other reason why I wanted to do that is as we do these mitigation planning efforts, many times we optimize for the reduction of damage to buildings in their context, just raw dollars. By definition, socially vulnerable people are not valuable on the dollar scale. And so um, many times I'd see folks say, well, we don't have the data to account for benefit to low to moderate income populations, so we just won't consider that. Those people are literally on the map now. You cannot, you cannot avoid the conversation as you choose your mitigation uh, plans and where you put some of those built practices and, and how those benefits then get added up. Those folks are literally on the map now, and that was very important for me. Yeah, well, that's terrific, yeah. Yeah, and, and Larry, in the work you do, um, kind of thinking uh, maybe beyond Iowa here, thinking about water resources generally and what is faced by people around the world. Um, are there bright spots? Do you think that there are places where really innovative ideas have been embraced? Yeah, you know, there really are. And, and again, a lot of the times we look to the Dutch, you know, in terms of flood protection, you know, they have a very different system mm -hmm. than we have here in the United States. Um, but as we really try to focus on our water quality challenge, uh, we've also learned a lot from the Danish, and the Danish have uh, similar nutrient-related issues, very agriculturally-driven uh, economy. Uh, they had a lot of fjords that uh, had eutrophication issues, uh, and it was affecting uh, migratory salmon, uh, which was a real lifeblood of their economy and their culture. And they've come a long way uh, towards uh, their water quality goals. 
um, one of the ways that I like to put it into context for Iowa, and I'll just to bring it back to Iowa for mm -hmm. a minute, I mentioned that we work in these kind of local small watersheds. Um, my estimate is that we would have to spend about $3 million uh, in these uh, watersheds for uh, the work that we need to do on flood damage reduction. In Iowa, there's 1,660 of those. Hmm. Okay, so 3 million times 1,660 is 4.8 billion, just kind yeah. of in rough numbers. We'll round it up to $5 billion. <laughs> um, likewise, I think we need to spend about $3 million in each one of these watersheds to achieve our water quality goals. Again, 3 million times 1,600, we'll round that up to 5 billion. So that's a $10 billion challenge that yeah. we have in front of our state. If we try to put that into context of a planning perspective, uh, Iowa's water and land legacy, uh, which would generate you know, roughly 160 to $180 million, we'll round it up for tonight to 200 million. If we take 200 million into 10 billion, that's 50 years. So imagine Iowa in 50 years if we had, you know, roughly $200 million a year to tackle these challenges. It could be a different state, like it was a different state 50 years ago before we really started addressing soil loss in Iowa. We've changed how soil comes off our land. We've done tremendous improvements there. If we could do the same thing on water quality and flood damage reduction, the state could be a different state in 50 years. Mm -hmm. Well, you're, you're both active teachers in the College of Engineering. Um, you work with students with bright ideas all the time and, and add your own. Um, and Craig, I know that you have taken students to other countries so that they can help build wells and see uh, the impact on a community of a new water resource. Um, what gives you the most hope as you see your students come through uh, year after year after year? Um, there's some parents of some of those students in here. Oh, yeah? <laughs> uh, yeah, I was just chatting with some of uh, them earlier. Um, it, and Facebook is, is real, um, even though they take your data. Um, <laughs> but um, to, see, uh, to see these students that, uh, that we're friends with out doing their projects, some are harvesting water from, from fog uh, in, in areas that don't have uh, you know, sufficient water just to drink. The other thing about that is, is it, it does provide perspective to us all. Um, these places where we go are always culturally rich, uh, family uh, centric uh, sort of places. Time is kind of in a different dimension than it is here. Um, and I appreciate that in many ways. And yet um, some of the basic development issues that uh, potentially lead to poor health outcomes and whatnot, those are, are, those, those are struggles there. And so the willingness to partner and, and the, the kind of friendships that get made through these interactions, I think, are part of the collaboration that was mentioned that was needed in the first section, uh, the first uh, segment here. And, and I think that more the collaboration uh, beyond the technical or any you know, particular well you, that gets mm -hmm. provided or whatnot, that, that's the thing that lasts, I think, through the lifetime of our own students as they go out and learn uh, in these situations. And I think that's, that's absolutely invaluable. Mm -hmm. And do you have anything to add, Larry? You, you know, one, one, one fun uh, project that we have going on, a colleague of Craig and, and mine, uh, has a project right now, and it's a really great way to engage uh, people. And, and you can take these very inexpensive strips, dip it in the water, hold it up to a reference card, and you can get a rough estimate of what the nitrate concentration is. So we have this, you know, this, this contaminant in our water that we can't see, and so people don't really know how big of an issue it is. Now we have the, the, the ability to take that strip and put it on a, a credit card size reference card, take a photo of it with your iPhone or Android device, and it does the interpolation for you automatically. Oh, so it wow. tells you, you know, wow. down to a tenth of a milligram per liter what the concentration is, 
But more interestingly, it will upload it to a website and will show the GPS location on a geospatially referenced map that shows what that water quality concentration is. Hmm. So imagine, you know, going to the county fair or perhaps the state fair <laughs> and handing out these little strips that cost, you know, a few pennies a strip and a little credit card reference, you know, and everybody seems like they have a smartphone today. We could do you know, event type sampling, we could do sampling that would become ubiquitous across our state mm -hmm. and not have to rely just on these high-end $30,000 per location water quality sensors. That could be a game changer. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm writing a proposal now uh, with our colleagues in Nicaragua to do just that in <laughs> 750 communities so they can monitor their own uh, water wells um, and and do so it's a leapfrog technology you know there's no very few landlines in these places um, mm -hmm. but there's cell phones everywhere i mean i can get 4g internet speed in the middle of nowhere ghana mm -hmm. nicaragua i've done it multiple times um, but yet they don't have some of these basic uh, resources that that we're accustomed to having and so we can leapfrog right over some of these issues um, as we develop things here that then can apply to other places and that's mm -hmm. a great example yeah fantastic gosh great to have you both here uh, craig justin larry weber thank you very much for being with this this afternoon and um, we're going to break here and go into our third segment in just a moment this is world canvas i'm joan Kerr, and we'll be back in just a sec hello i'm joan Kerr from world canvas and international programs and i'm happy to have you here with us for this program tonight on climate science and the environment and in this part of the program we'll really be concentrating on the last part of our program title which is what's next uh, scientists community leaders environmental watchdogs and others are studying the effects of climate change on the environment and are advancing new solutions by the day but will it be enough to avoid catastrophic damage to the most vulnerable parts of our planet or a steady degradation of the air the land and the sea our guests in this a segment on global responses to environmental challenges will help us get to some of those questions. Maybe we can't provide all the answers, but we can at least ask the right questions. Um, our guests tonight are uh, Jerry Anthony, Associate Professor in the UI School of Urban and Regional Planning. Thank you, Jerry, for being here. Next to him is Tyler Priest, Associate Professor in the UI Department of History and the UI Department of Geographical and Sustainability Sciences. Thanks, Ty. Thanks, John. Mm -hmm. And at the far end, we have Jerry Schnorr, Professor in the University of Iowa College of Engineering and Co-Director of the Center for Global and Regional Environmental Research. Thank you for being here, Jerry. Thanks, John. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm going to start with you first, uh, Jerry Anthony. Um, as we said, you're a professor in urban and regional planning, and when we look at devastating storms, rising sea levels, potential damage to population centers and shorelines, uh, you have to ask uh, what's being done to lower the risks to vulnerable populations, to homeowners, communities, economic interests, transportation, uh, you name it. Can you give us a picture of what, uh, choose any part of the world you want to talk about, and uh, tell us what people are thinking about. Well, um, you know, cities and urban areas are ground zero for uh, a couple uh, different reasons. Uh, one, cities, uh, they occupy about two and a half, three percent of the land mass um, of the earth, um, but they account for about two thirds of the energy consumption and about two thirds of all the greenhouse gas emissions. So in some ways, they're responsible for a lot of climate change. Um, but on the other hand, um, cities are what drive the economy uh, of, of, of states and, uh, and nations. So you can't get rid of cities. But also, if you can address these issues in cities, you can address and have a big impact, positive impact on climate change. Mm -hmm. 
And the good news is that a lot of uh, mitigative efforts on climate change are happening in the cities. Uh, in countries uh, abroad and even in the US, uh, federal governments might uh, kick the can down the road to the states. The states might not act, but cities have to act. Their political leaders have to act. They are responsible. And, and generally, they've been very, very responsive. Um, over the years, there have been many, many cities that have engaged in positive things to mitigate climate change. Uh, the United Nations, there's a Sustainable Cities Initiative, and many, many cities have signed on. Many good things are happening. They have fantastic knowledge bases. Uh, they share information with each other. There's an organization founded in 2005 called the C40 Compact of Cities, Network of Cities. Um, it has um, 92 member cities that account for 650 million population, about 25% of the GDP. Uh, global GDP, and they've been doing amazing things and uh, sharing information. The information, like for example, um, um, Copenhagen came and set up a lab uh, for mitigating um, climate change from uh, or, or the uh, urban heat island effect in New York. So there is that transfer of innovation happening. So I'm very, very optimistic um, that um, good things are going to come. Um, but till those good things come, there are a couple of things we have to keep in mind. One is this. Right now, 52 to 53 percent of uh, humankind lives in urban areas. And within about 25, 30 years, it's going to be about 70, 75 percent. We have a fantastic opportunity to build the emerging urban areas in a way that would mitigate the negative impacts of climate change. Uh, they would, they, they, so there is a fantastic opportunity here that we must seize. Mm -hmm. Now, most of that opportunity is in uh, developing countries. So we must ensure that developing countries uh, adopt uh, urban development patterns that are much better than the development patterns that we have used in the West in the many years. Mm -hmm. And as we do these things, we must be cognizant of three things. We must be cognizant de definitely of the environment, but we must ensure that um, as we put in these mitigative measures, they are not inequitable. And as we put in these mitigative measures, they do not compromise economic development. And it can be done and has been done in many cities. Hmm. So if we were to take an example of one of these cities of the future that could be built, what would be the wisest way to build one of these new cities? Well, there is a city of the future that, has, that does exist today, uh, and that city is Hong Kong. <clears throat> um, Hong Kong is a very small city, population of six or seven million. Uh, way, way back uh, in the 1970s, it decided that it will not allow development on more than 30% of the total land mass of the different islands that con constitute the city. So they drew this line in the sand and identified places where growth will happen, identified places where growth will not happen. And by and large, they've stuck to it. Um, and um, to enable uh, a lot of people to live, they've decided that they're going to build high density. When you build high density, you have an, another amazing thing happens. You have um, the residential density to to provide the ridership density for public transit. Hmm. So they've built a transportation system that is completely transit dependent and not auto dependent. So they reduce the greenhouse gas emissions hmm. very, very significantly. Now, when you ha restrict development, you have a land scarcity effect, which drives up housing prices. And how do they respond to that? By building a lot of public housing. Hmm. So about 60 to 65% of the population in Hong Kong lives in subsidized housing. Hmm. So the average University professor there lives in subsidized housing, and there's no stigma attached to this. Mm -hmm. Here in this country, we have a stigma attached. We have very poor people living in subsidized housing, and we have very rich people living in subsidized housing. For example, the, uh, you know, in, um, in my housing policy classes, I um, often show 
uh, a picture of the White House because that's the one of the most expensive subsidized housing <laughs> units we have in the country. Uh, and so, <laughs> and so. <laughs> So, so do you do you see um, interest on on a um, you know within national plans outside of Hong Kong? Uh, do you see a lot of interest in um, pursuing this this kind of planned development? National plans, definitely. But I think the bigger impacts we are seeing at the city level. Yeah, and we are seeing amazing things here in the city of Iowa City as well. Um, we have seen significant uh, improvements in, for example, reducing the amount of vehicle miles traveled increasing the number of uh, bicycle trips, increasing the number of walking trips. Mm -hmm. um, the city has a plan to re reduce the uh, greenhouse gas emissions by reducing the flaring of landfill gas. Oh, yeah. So amazing things are happening in small, small cities, uh, in spite of all the rhetoric about, you know, is there global mm -hmm. warming or no global warming? Mm -hmm. Amazing things are happening in cities. So I'm very, mm -hmm. very hopeful. Hmm. That doesn't mean that we can less, uh, rest on our laurels because there are also these dark political clouds on the horizon in certain places in certain states. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, I think we are seeing trends where um, certain state governments are trying to rein in the powers of local governments, <laughs> and they might uh, try to do that for uh, um, you know, actions that help with uh, mm -hmm. global warming, yeah. uh, you know, reducing global warming and climate change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And be before we move down to uh, Thai, let me ask you a question about the rising sea levels yeah. and, and coastal cities. And uh, are there some examples of some good actions that are being taken oh, there? Oh, I, I can share a couple of examples from news stories in the last, uh, in the last seven days. Uh, so about a week ago, um, public television, um, PBS, ran a story on the flooding that is happening around Norfolk, Virginia. Oh. Uh, that area in Southeast Virginia houses about a million people and is the site of the largest naval base in the world. Mm -hmm. And because of rising sea levels, it's being difficult for people to get to the naval base. Uh, what happens in the event of a, you know, so, you know a, a yeah. defense response? People yeah. can't get to that naval base. So there is that. Um, and, you know, it's compromising uh, a lack of response, or so lack of adequate response to climate change and global warming is compromising our ability to protect our country. Wow. So we got to do wow. that. Yeah. The other examples that I can say is uh, there's an uh, article that is just coming out in the Journal of Environmental Economics, and this was cited in either the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, came out about three or four days ago. This is about flooding in Miami, in the greater Miami area, and how, because of persistent flooding, many high-end neighborhoods are losing their value. Oh, my. Okay, so it's starting to impact. Yeah. It's starting yeah, to impact. Yeah, right. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you. Yeah. Got us off to a good start there. I'm going to bring it down to a, a tie now and talk a little bit about, um, you know, the need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and um, the prospect we have for living a fossil-free Future is there? Is there a way we can um, imagine our future with fewer fossil fuels? As a historian, I somehow always find myself having to comment on the future. <laughs> I can barely, I can barely <laughs> make sense of the past. Yeah. Let, let alone comment on the future. History. Yeah. Uh, um, so um, <laughs> it's hard enough to. It's becoming harder to live with fossil yeah. fuels, yeah. Um, but uh, the prospect of a fossil fuel future is almost unlivable too. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the dilemma. Mm -hmm. It's we we can't live with them and we can't live with, without mm -hmm. them, right? Um, you know, uh, there. We, so we, there are huge challenges. I think mm -hmm. that's come out of this pr program mm -hmm. to uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, reducing our dependence 
on um, coal, oil, and gas, yeah. uh, fossil fuels. We can certainly, so what we need to do is attack the biggest problem, I think, to avoid despair and despondency when we look at these challenges. Mm -hmm. What can we do now? What is the biggest thing we can do as a society through policy, through technology, and that is radically reduce our uh, consumption of coal. We still need coal to produce steel and cement, but we can eliminate it from the power and electricity sector. Um, e easier for us in the United States and developed countries than in places like India and China, as you've, as you've heard. Um, but I think uh, their uh, energy systems will evolve in, in similar ways that ours ha have. Um, it's hard to imagine eliminating uh, the use of crude oil and natural gas. Uh, we just use it for, t for too much. Um, you know, I, I can imagine, I can't imagine a future without uh, oil and gas. I can't, can't imagine a future where we curtail our use of oil and gas in a way uh, that will, you know, lead us on that path so that we try to stay under, two, you know, two degrees warming, um, you know, or possibly three degrees warming by the, by the end of the century. So when you, t when you talk about our energy use, it's, it's important to break, look at the four different sectors, the way that we use energy, power and electricity, okay, um, transportation fuels, uh, heat, and cooling, which partially comes from electricity. We heat uh, our homes and businesses in the United States with natural gas, about 50% with natural gas in this country, mm -hmm. and then agriculture. But the, the, the two places where the, the, the biggest, the most intensive uses of fossil fuels are the first two, you know, heating and, I mean, electricity and power and transportation fuels. And the biggest strides that we've made and will continue to make are in um, power and electricity. And the United States is the leader. Uh, our greenhouse gas emissions in 2017 were 800 million tons less than they were in 2005. Um, Europe, European Union was about the same, but they have 200 million more people than we do. So on a per capita basis, we've reduced our, greenhouse, our CO2 emissions more than any other nation. China, in that period of time, increased their CO2 emissions by 3 billion tons. India has increased their uh, CO2 emissions by 1 billion tons. How do we do it? The two, we, we were, we've been phasing out coal. That is the, the main reason, and, and, and we've done it with natural gas one and wind power mm -hmm. a distant second. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, as uh, uh, mentioned in the, in the very first segment, there's no silver bullet. Mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot of people tend to think that wind and solar are going to be a silver bullet uh, that, that are going to you know, save us from our dependence on fossil fuel. That's just simply not the case. Um, when you look at scale, when you look at physics, when you look at economics, um, we can certainly phase out coal, um, you know, uh, phase in wind and solar, but the intermittency factor and the, and the low power density of, of those sources of energy are going to make it very difficult. Um, and the, uh, natural gas is 50 to 60, per, emits 50 to 60 percent fewer um, uh, carbon dioxide than um, coal. Oil uh, emits 20, about 25 percent less carbon dioxide than, than coal. Um, when you put up a wind farm, because of the intermittency, you need, you need some, if, you know, people like to turn on the lights when, when they want. 
right? Mm -hmm. um, and so you need baseload power, you need uh, peaking power, uh, you need backup power. And the most versatile and the, you know, the least carbon intensive source for that is natural gas. Um, and um, it's, a, it's a result of the fracking revolution that we have these abundant supplies of natural gas. Fracking has its own problems. Um, and, um, you know, that's, a, that's an entirely different discussion, which we ha we've had on the previous mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> World Canvas uh, program. Mm -hmm. um, but that's, you know, we can, we can continue to make strides. You hear about the, the, you know, the dramatic increases in wind and solar capacity installations and the, and the declining cost of towers and, and blades and um, photovoltaic cells. But even then, uh, wind only accounts for 6% of our electricity generation and solar is less than 1%. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, big challenges ahead. Um, there, are, there are other, a lot of discussion about energy storage, if we can find a way to store electricity. Um, Elon Musk and Tesla are, are working on this, but the problem is the lithium-ion battery. It's not, yeah. that's not the future. I mean, it's, it, it, it will he it's helping uh, create a market for high-end, uh, electric vehicles, uh, but uh, a lithium ion, the cost and the weight of the lithium ion battery, it's 1,200 pounds in the Tesla Model S. Uh -huh. um, you know, just, yeah. so, you know, the other big, the biggest challenge is gonna be the transportation sector, right? Um, and just to give you some numbers, and, 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 and these are depressing numbers, but uh, when, you, when you think about it, but we need to think about it. We can't avoid the, the numbers. We have 270 million, registered light-duty vehicles in the United States, all running on gasoline. We have 68 million heavy-duty uh, trucks running on diesel fuel. We have 7,000 commercial um, airplanes. Uh, we, we have, there are 7,000 tankers and cargo ships and, and container ships that make 70,000 calls at U.S. ports every year. Um, to, it's a much taller order to decarbonize mm -hmm. that sector than it is the power and electricity sector. And I, instead of thinking of a fossil-free future, I like to think of it in terms of decarbonization. It, you know, it gives us a, you know, an achievable goal. Mm -hmm. you know, a a fossil-free fossil future is a good aspirational goal, mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's, it's not an achievable goal mm -hmm. you know, in, in any conceivable time frame for us right now. Yeah. So Jerry, I'm going to go to you for uh, an optimistic uh, um, set of conclusions to all of this. Um, I mean, no, obviously we, we need to think about these tough things. You, you wrote a great piece in the paper the other day, uh, Jerry, about some of the issues related to, you know, climate change, climate science, the environment, and some of the strides that have been made by certain industries. For example, you mentioned the maritime industry on its own. Um, making some strides in reducing uh, its pollutants. Yeah. So, so take us into this. Well, that was about the shipping industry, which is a very large emitter, in fact, equal to about uh, Germany. Yeah. And they agreed this, uh, this month, in fact, by 2050, to reduce their emissions by 50%. And to get them, uh, that was a very difficult vote, actually. The mm -hmm. uh, shipping industry is very international and... Uh, but they, they did, so there are, there are some good things happening at the uh, international and the mm -hmm. global uh, level. Of course, uh, most all countries agree on what needs to be done. In fact, uh, 
now that Syria has joined the Paris Climate Agreement, I think we're uh, singular uh, in our, uh, our lack thereof. I guess that's American exceptionalism. <laughs> because we're the only, only ones who aren't uh, a member of that. And, and that does throw a, a wrench into certain things. But on the other hand, uh, maybe it energizes some other uh, countries, China, for example, mm -hmm. to uh, become more a leader on the uh, world stage. And I think the European Union, uh, too, although they're certainly uh, affected by the Brexit and the breakup of uh, uh, England from the EU. Uh, the agreement itself was amazing. My wife, Jana, who's here, we were actually there. I was a, a, a part of the media at the uh, Paris Climate Agreement. There were a lot of Iowans there, by the way. Uh, our mayors uh, uh, were um, from Dubuque and uh, from Des Moines played a very prominent role. And as Jerry Anthony said, it's really the action is at the cities mm -hmm. and I would add the states and business and industry. That's where mm -hmm. the action is. That's where innovation is occurring. That's where uh, the real hope is. So maybe the international agreement isn't quite as important, but at least we're trying to keep track of our emissions and uh, we're falling short even there, while all countries agreed that this is a serious problem, mm -hmm. and all countries agreed that they would embark on a plan uh, to reduce their emissions and raise money for the poorest um, and most vulnerable and affected uh, countries, we're falling short of even those goals. So the, um, it, it's really, really a voluntary agreement. We couldn't possibly, uh, President Obama couldn't possibly have brought an agreement back to the Senate to try to have a formal treaty uh, uh, endorsed. So uh, it is a voluntary uh, uh, treaty, but it's one in which uh, we are making progress, but the uh, promises so far are not sufficient to uh, contain our uh, climate to less than two degrees Celsius warming. We're already at about one degree Celsius warming. We've probably loaded the system because the climate system is sluggish. We've probably loaded the system for another about 0 0.6 degrees Celsius, even if we could stop all emissions tomorrow. So climate change is here already. We're going to have more climate change. We need to adapt to it, which was part of the first two uh, segments, but we need to uh, help stop it also. And this international agreement is an effort to do that, but on the good side, the cities and the states are where, really where the action is taking place, and we need, we need more action. Mm -hmm. uh, even the financing, this is where the, our, our one American exceptionalism makes a difference. We pledged $3 billion towards $100 billion of aid for the most vulnerable countries. Uh, I believe under Obama, we paid about a billion of that $3 billion pledge, but there's no, nothing else forthcoming. <laughs> Thank heavens for the cities. Uh, Bloomberg paid our bill to the office of the uh, UNFCC, the Framework Convention on Climate Change of $4.5 million this uh, week. He also paid our, one of our other pledges of $15 million uh, last year. So uh, thank heavens for philanthropy as well. 
Again, the action is at the cities. I see Mayor Throgmorton in the mm -hmm. back. He's <laughs> one of four uh, mayors in Iowa who have joined the uh, climate mayors, uh, including, I think, Dubuque and Des Moines and Iowa City and Fairfield, I think, mm -hmm. if I'm not right. And so that, that's where uh, the hope is. That's where the action is. Um, I may be not quite as pessimistic as my colleague, Ty. <laughs> Um, uh, we could talk about scenarios where uh, we might be able to affect change mm -hmm. a little bit faster. Mm -hmm. But um, there, there's good things happening. Uh, just because the United States isn't a part and party uh, to the Climate Convention uh, at Paris, uh, it really doesn't uh, matter too much. I might add that, uh, by the way, the United States is on track to uh, follow the uh, Obama pledge right now of uh, 24 to 26% uh, reduction by 2025. So mm -hmm. we're actually on that uh, track mm -hmm. and we certainly energize some other countries. Mm -hmm. So I, th I think there's some there's some hopeful prospects. So, so let's continue that, that discussion tonight. I'm not, Do you I'm have not you? pessimistic. <laughs> 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 the one thing that I, that I found very hopeful in recent years is the Obama administration's approach to um, a whole strategy, a coordinated strategy to try to uh, position the United States to meet its pledges in the Paris conference uh, through fuel efficiency standards and, and uh, EPA um, auto emissions, which were combined to double uh, the requirements for fuel efficiency standards. Um, you know, the clean power plan, which I think, you know, it's kind of been overtaken by events and states are really leading the charge and, you, and you're having places like California and the states in the New England, mm -hmm. you know, uh, following through Iowa was certainly on track to meet its target for the clean power plan. Um, and I think despite what the current administration is trying to do, a lot of the things that Obama did are, are gonna hold. Mm -hmm. Um, he did a lot with uh, trying to limit methane emissions uh, from fracking on, on public lands and, and uh, through EPA rules. Mm -hmm. The Trump administration un under Scott Pruitt's been trying to roll those back, but they're facing, uh, they're going to face defeat in the courts on a lot of these things. Hmm. Um, Ryan Zinke's efforts, you know, plan to open up the entire U.S. coastline to offshore drilling is not going to go anywhere. They'll never be drilling off the coast of California. Um, I, you know, so if anything, they're shooting, they're shooting themselves in the foot if we, uh, with their policies. They're politically stupid. Um, if we can, just, we can just reverse course in four years and get back on to what, uh, you know, the policy uh, track that the Obama administration had placed us on, I think mm -hmm. we're, you know, we're going to make great strides. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things you mentioned in your commentary, uh, Jerry, was that here in Iowa, jobs can come out of a, of a new way of looking at, uh, at energy. We are a great example of the good things that can come. This is how, we're, you know, uh, there was a famous economist, uh, Jerry Anthony, I'm sure can tell us about uh, Schumpeter, who was at Harvard, uh, Austrian born. And uh, I actually don't like his economics very well, but he, he <laughs> coined a very famous term called creative destruction. And that was the notion that if you really want to grow the economy, what you do is wipe out whole systems and replace them mm. with something better. Mm. And that's what we've got to do. And mm. we've got to wipe out the... Fo I tell my students the fossil fuel age, is, it's been a good run. You know, <laughs> for more than 200 years, we've heated our homes, we've clothed ourselves, we've built our houses, but it's got to come to an end. Mm. 
We cannot burn even the coal, oil, and natural gas, which we have in proven reserve. We cannot. We have to leave it in the ground. The oil resources that Ty was talking about are about $2 trillion. You know, you're talking about stress. This is $2 trillion of assets that the oil companies already own in proven reserve. We can't burn it. We won't burn it. I'll guarantee you we will not. I also tell my students, coal, oil, and natural gas, these three will all be essentially phased out in their lifetime. Wow. It's already happening to the coal industry. <laughs> it's already happening to the coal industry. They can't borrow money. Yeah. Uh, the largest coal company, Peabody, has gone out of uh, business. It's filed uh, Chapter uh, 12, I believe it is. Uh, and it'll happen to the oil companies next. Uh, and transportation fuels are actually a very easy one to replace. When you talk about yeah. oil, you're talking about a transportation fuel problem. It almost mm -hmm. all goes to transportation fuel. That one is easy to replace. We'll replace it with electric vehicles. We'll have, in fact, of the 270 million vehicles that Ty mentioned, if we put batteries in each and every one of them and connected it to the grid, there would be 660 gigawatts. Uh, right now we have about 340 gigawatts of nuclear power. We'd have 660 gigawatts in this country alone of electrical storage by going to the vehicle-to-grid type program. It's an obvious pathway for the future and one in which will create tons of jobs, mm -hmm. uh, as Elon Musk has, uh, has mm -hmm. shown us the I, way. I would just say yes. I would agree that we can replace the cars with battery uh, EV cars if we find a battery that no one has yet invented. <laughs> it's not going to be the lithium-ion battery. Well, I have faith that the engineers and the thinkers in this group and elsewhere will find such a device and we'll, we'll, we'll get there. And you're a young man. You'll still be teaching history when you can look young. back on these days and say, I once promised this would never happen. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much, Jerry Schnorr, Ty Priest, and Jerry Anthony for being with us this afternoon. It was thank great you. fun to have you here. Thanks thank so much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, and that's, uh, that's our last program for this season. Thank you for being here, and we hope to see you next fall. Good night.